Spencer Balpert. If you want to browse some Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except that it's occurring on a Tuesday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows as he does uh, each week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, 20 players were extended qualifying offers. And for the first time uh, this year, three of those players accepted them. Brett Anderson, Colby Rasmus, Matt Wieters. Cameron discusses what the motivations of those particular players might have been and what this might reveal about uh, next year's free agent class. Also, Andrew Elton Simmons has been traded. He's been traded to the Los Angeles Angels from the Atlanta Braves in exchange for Eric Ibar and prospect Sean Newcomb. Of course, other players involved in the deal. Those are the principal names, though. What do we know about how Andrelton Simmons is, that is, defensively gifted players? What do we know about how they've aged in the past? And what does this reveal about uh, Atlanta's intentions for building their ball club from within? And it's uh, not the last thing we discuss, but we also do address the Craig Kimbrell trade. There are those who might suggest that, given the Red Sox considerably deep minor league system, it's incumbent upon them to trade some of their future assets for present-day talent. Dave Cameron does not precisely agree with that point of view. I don't think how many prospects you have really should have much to do or anything to do with how willing you are to trade prospects at a discount. The conversation uh, to follow to follow briefly. First, however, I'm contractually obligated and also delighted to mention our sponsor. Our sponsor is Draft in the Draft app. Are you familiar with FanDuel or DraftKings? Those are daily fantasy sports games. So is the Draft app, with the exception, with the exception that is the first uh, such daily fantasy sports game designed exclusively for mobile devices. Here is how you play. You challenge either a friend or internet stranger who is part of the draft universe. You conduct a snake draft, each selecting five players. Those players accrue fantasy points. And whichever of you, you or your opponent, have collected the most total fantasy points, uh, you are the winner. Are you interested in adding uh, an extra layer of intrigue to these proceedings? You can do that uh, by way of wagering American currency on the outcomes of these games. These games of uh, skill, I should not only add, but emphasize. And having done so, I am sure that you, uh, the listener, are very interested in how you might participate. Well, allow me to tell you, if you're our owner of a Mac device and have the iOS operating system, consider going to the App Store. On the other hand, if you have some manner of Android device, go to Google Play. You can download the app there. Is it fun for the whole family? I can't guarantee that, but it's fun for enough individuals for the game to be quite popular. That is the sponsor, Draft, the Draft app. Consider downloading that. Please consider downloading that. And now consider listening to Dave Cameron. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio featuring Managing Editor Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. episode of the podcast yeah and uh that's gonna go up after yours because i think that um his needs more editing <laughs> well that's probably true yeah he's got uh he's just a little bit upset with the world i think is one thing i've noticed yeah yeah that's kind of his thing yeah it's a little bit his thing but yeah. it, he's been gainfully employed for a while now which is uh amazing yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually he seems to seems to do a lot of the heavy lifting for them over at cbs so yeah good well. for him i guess Sometimes people with uh, axes to grind are strong and can lift heavy things. <laughs> what well, axe to grind against humanity or life? It seems like yeah, life itself. I think. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> let me ask you. Let me ask you this question. Uh, let me ask you about qualifying offers. When I have spoken with you recently, um, you indicated, and it's something I will refer to now, uh, at least to raise people's interest, if not 
for its a- actual accuracy. I think you stated in no uncertain terms you felt that there would be that no one would accept a qualifying offer. Uh, I don't remember being that certain, but yeah, I mean, I figured everyone who was, uh, extended one could get a multi-year deal on the open market if they wanted to. Uh, and you know, I think, uh, if you look at like Brett Anderson said publicly, he turned down several multi-year deals in order to take a, you know, what was presumably a higher one-year deal uh, in terms of annual average value. Uh, and he liked to stay, you know, he wanted to play with the Dodgers. He liked the environment there. So that probably factored into it. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I think like all of these guys, uh, the three guys who accepted probably could have gotten a three-year, you know, 30-ish million dollar deal, but perhaps they looked at next year's free agent class and said, man, that, that's a sad group of players that I'm going to be competing against. I'm going to take my 116 and then go try and hit the jackpot next year. So that's, uh, that, uh, now you've just brought up a thing which uh, seems quite relevant to the, each free agent's experience, which is, uh, they have to consider the market against which they're currently competing and the one that they would be competing against next year. Right. I think if you look at this free agent class, it's the best one we've seen in, I don't know, a decade, maybe, maybe more. I mean, there's a lot of talent available this winter. Uh, and, you know, obviously anytime that, you know, good players are available, that means that the team they used to be on now has a whole. But from a lot of, a lot of these cases, we're seeing uh, really good players leaving teams who aren't necessarily going to be in the market to replace them at that same financial level. So, like, if the Blue Jays don't re-sign David Price, which I think no one really expects them to re-sign David Price, they're not going to go sign some other pitcher for $210 million. Uh, so there is a supply of talent uh, that's going to be uh, offset by some of the, the teams losing these players uh, by much cheaper players. And, and so I think you're going to uh, have, have a situation this winter where those teams who are in the market to spend a lot of money, you know, $100 million plus, have a lot more options this winter uh, than, than there will be next winter. I mean, next winter, it's basically Steven Strasburg and then, you know, crap. Really? Is it, is it that gloomy? I mean, you have, like, Jose Batista and, and Edwin Encarnacion will be free agents next winter. Uh, they're good players. I think they're going to be 35 and 37, respectively, or something. So you'd be betting on kind of aging power bats, you know, uh, you know, especially if you take them out of Toronto, like, you know, if they, I would say maybe, uh, not the kind of guy who's going to get a, a, a long-term deal. They might be more in the, you know, three, four year contract, uh, you know, high annual average values. Uh, there's, they'll still be good players. And then there, you know, there's some okay second tier players who could make a leap. Uh, but really Strasburg's the premier guy next winter, uh, or maybe a Roldis Chapman if you think you can, you know, maximize his value as a closer and you want to spend a crazy amount of money on a, on a guy who pitches 60 or 70 innings a year. But there's not a good mid-tier or upper mid-tier group like there is this year with Cueto and Zimmerman and, you know, kind of these guys who aren't going to get the most money but are still going to get a lot. Uh, so so the, now in terms of uh, strategy, taking or not taking the, the qualifying offer, I suppose it's not surprising to me uh, that Matt Wieters w- uh, would take it, maybe in, in a sense betting on his ability uh, to perform well in 2016 and, and earn a multi-year contract. Uh, I suppose, um, I don't know, uh, of course, Brett Anderson has been injured for a number of years and was finally healthy this year, but maybe he feels like he could bet on himself to perf- to stay healthy again next year. Uh, but the, the case of Colby Rasmus is an interesting one to me. He... I, I don't know. We'd ever publish and, uh, you know, like with our steamer or zips projections, uh, the, the sort of distribution of, out, of possible outcomes. Uh, and some players, they always seem like, like they'll give you, you know, maybe if it's a particularly good defensive player, um, or a player whose, whose game is heavily predicated on plate discipline, 
that the range of outcomes is smaller. Kobe Rasmus seems to be a player uh, who offers a wide range of, of possible outcomes because so much because he swings and misses a lot, and he also has uh, considerably above average power. But he actually had like a three win season this year, so I would have expected him to get whatever he could. Yeah, I mean, I think it's he's the kind of guy who I think you could say his stock could improve pretty dramatically. I mean, like keep in mind, a year ago he got one eight uh, from the Astros because I think a lot of people looked at him as kind of like a busted prospect and you know said like this is a guy on the downside of his career who's already peaked and they looked at him as like a Ben Grieve or one of those types of guys who was you know maybe a solid player early in his career but then has already you know kind of burned through several organizations uh, teams that didn't want to keep him and um, so I think he's maybe looking at it and saying look I just came off a three win season but there's still skepticism about what I can be he had a really good postseason uh, perhaps he feels like if he has another good year he can put a little bit more distance between him and kind of the lingering idea of him as a busted prospect and then you know if he has back-to-back three win seasons and he's still in his 20s now all of a sudden he might be the best free agent uh, position player in the market next winter and maybe he's in line for a hundred million dollar deal I mean I think if Rasmus I think I projected him for like 342 or something uh, and the crowd had him at like 336 so I think that's probably the kind of multi-year deal he would have been looking at uh, especially you know with the draft pick compensation um, and, you know 336 might be a little more realistic so you know if he's saying look I can get 116 uh, that means you know at 336 I'd be taking my next two years at 20 million dollars for to- total for both years it's 10 million a year that's barely more than what he got last offseason coming off a bad season uh, so I think you know there's upside here where he's betting on himself and saying look instead of taking 220 for the next couple of years uh, beyond this next season uh, I'm going to try and get like you know 575 or 680 or something uh, which he could certainly do if he has another three-win season right okay yeah he I mean he still remains an interesting player there are very few uh, players really at any given time who are able to play center field and also possess that sort of power. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be looked at as a center fielder for that much longer. And, you know, I think uh, he's not going to play center field in Houston this year now that they traded for Carlos Gomez. So I think he's going to play left field almost exclusively, and he'll probably be seen as a left fielder going forward. But if he, you know, he hits 30 bombs and plays decent defense and draws some walks, like there's going to be a market for that kind of player, uh, you know, especially with a, a – him putting some distance between kind of the idea of what he was seen as a year ago. Is there still, I remember, I feel like when he was uh, in his first couple of years, obviously um, he was highly thought of, but there was also a lot of hand-wringing, hand-wringing um, uh, and it seemed like a conflict between him and between uh, Tony La Russa and Colby Rasmus's father. Is it, Am I yeah. remembering that correctly? Yeah, so Ra- even as a prospect, Rasmus's father was seen as like one of the most overbearing baseball dads out there and, you know, was, uh, maybe, was seen to be too involved in his son's coaching and influence and, you know, instead of listening to the, the Cardinals coaches, he would listen to, uh, um, his own dad and kind of go against what the Cardinals were trying to teach him. Uh, that was one of the reasons the Cardinals traded him to Toronto. And like, uh, you know, he didn't, didn't, uh, exactly endure himself up there either. So I think he's developed a reputation as being difficult. Uh, and perhaps that's one of the things that, you know, maybe taking a one year offer, having another good season, maybe he can kind of sell it as that he's grown up, he's matured, he's gotten away from that and, and maybe, uh, that reputation will wear off a little bit. Yeah, I, uh, I, I hadn't heard as much about that recently, I guess. Yeah, it's died down for sure. Yeah, cause he's, I mean, it's not like he's on, uh, I mean, he's close to 30. Right. Your dad, I mean, you should, you can love your parents. Right. But your dad shouldn't be involved in your daily life when you're 30. Uh, yeah, I think I would agree with that. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, maybe not like a, as a blanket statement, but you know, if you're a major league baseball player and you've been in the majors for seven or eight years, <laughs> you should probably be beyond 
uh, calling your dad for advice every day. Yeah. Yeah. Unless your dad's like way better than you, maybe. Yeah. Unless your dad is Ted Williams. Yeah. But that didn't work out too well either. Calling Ted Williams would be tricky. Yeah, at this point, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's macabre. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, um, all right. So away from away from those briefly. Uh, two two big transactions. Just like two sizable transactions uh, since we last spoke. Um, first uh, first in the person of uh, Craig Kimbrell. Well, he was second, but yeah, we can talk about him first. Let's talk about him first. That's fine. We'll go we'll go in reverse order. Uh, Craig Kimbrell has been traded to the Boston Red Sox for uh, a pretty uh, hefty package, including yeah. most notably, I guess, what uh, Manuel Margot. Yeah, Man- Manny Margot. Manny Margot and Javier Guerrera. 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 Javier Guerra. Yeah. Javier Guerra. and then two other pieces. One of them is uh, rather young. Yeah, uh, Logan Allen, I think, uh, you know, a, a recent draft pick, but uh, a guy who was seen as a good, good value selection. I think Ben Badler tweeted that he had the value of a, a second or third round pick, which isn't nothing. I mean, that's you know, a couple million dollar asset. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Carlos Asahe, Asahe. I, I was thinking of Swahe or Asuahe. I'll go with that. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, who yeah. was uh, what a sort of middle infielder who might. Uh, Maybe is a profiles as a bench sort at the major league level. If he... Yeah, I mean, if you really like him, maybe you think like they just got a Devin Travis type, right? Like maybe this is one of those guys who's just never going to look like a toolsy guy, but just hits pretty well and and plays good enough defense to stick at the position. Uh, but more likely, he looks like a you know a future utility player or reserve or something along those lines. Right now, all of that, um, all of that for Craig Kimbrell. Yeah, three, three, years, three, years, three years, years of well, two guaranteed years in the team option. So three controllable years of Craig Kimbrell for you know whatever thirty six million dollars, thirty five million dollars, something like that. Not not the cheapest of years for a relief pitcher. Yeah, uh, and you know I think you know we mentioned Margot and Guerra, but we didn't really say what they are. Margot is a consensus top twenty five prospect, and I've seen him as high as I think top ten in some places. Uh, this is one of the the best prospects in baseball, and Guerra is a top hundred guy. Uh, you know, a couple of guys said he might even be top 50. Like, these are premium assets, and uh, I think there's an argument to be made, like, at least at the top of the deal, maybe not in the bottom of the deal, but the top of the deal, this is, like, comparable to what the uh, the Phillies got for Cole Hamels. <laughs> yeah, so what is the – all right, let's talk about the – let's talk about the the ceiling of the of a value for a relief pitcher, right? Yeah. Now, one way to, look, to do that is just by looking at, at uh, wins above replacement. Yeah. Um, we know, however, that relief pitchers in particular tend to outperform uh, their FIP numbers. Um, and so maybe you have to look at RA9, right, RA9 right. war. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Jeff Sullivan wrote a piece recently, too, looking at uh, the value that relief faces might provide even beyond that. Yeah. Uh, would you yeah, summarize that just to help you? You basically looked at kind of team clutch score and said, like, if we find teams that have these ace reliever performances, which is different than saying a team that trades for an ace reliever because you, you don't, you're not guaranteeing that you're going to get one of these crazy good seasons. But if you have one of these crazy good seasons, uh, it seems like your team outperforms their expected wins uh, based on, you know, uh, underlying Record, so either base runs or Pythag or whatever you want to look at, uh, by a couple of wins. And so you have a couple of missing wins, uh, somewhere for these teams with really great relievers, uh, you know, and you would think like just controlling for that one variable, uh, it's unlikely that it's going to be, you know, clutch hitting, persisting over that period of time. And I think Jeff looked at it back to like 74 or something. So, um, he went and looked at the kind of team bullpen clutch scores and he found that on average the teams who had this kind of relief ace 
have had a team clutch score of almost two wins, which is almost exactly what they found in terms of outperforming as, as uh, expected, expected record. And so um, it seems like there is, there's always been, you know, kind of a supposition among baseball um, executives that relievers are more valuable than we've been giving them credit for. I mean, I think the, you know, uh, the market pays relievers at a, a very high valuation relative to our wins above replacement, which suggests that teams think relievers are more valuable than, than war says. And they're probably right. Like we're probably undervaluing relievers, at least at the top end, uh, to some extent. Uh, and I think, you know, it, you could make an argument that maybe the best reliever in baseball is actually a three win pitcher instead of a two win pitcher. If you're going to give him credit for, you know, the fact that maybe he allows other pitchers to be uh, deployed in a more optimal manner and because they have a really great ninth inning guy, they can kind of mix and match earlier and not have to, you know, uh, leave their starters in so long. Like, you can uh, be a little bit more confident going to your bullpen earlier in the game if you know that, like, the ninth inning is basically a, a sealed deal. So uh, perhaps there's kind of a, a trickle-down effect of having a really great guy in the ninth inning who uh, helps the other uh, parts of his bullpen perform perform better. A trickle down effect that that works. You mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, unlike some economic philosophies, <laughs> mostly rebutted. Uh, this one seems to maybe have some substance to it. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the advantage to Craig Kimbrell, of course, or one thing we know certainly about Craig Kimbrell is that he has he's performed excellently in the past. Yes. Right. And uh, that is a good indication of him performing. Uh, well in the future, but obviously it's not a guarantee. And uh, additionally, uh, we know that relievers uh, are a bit of a fickle bunch, aren't they? Yeah, right. The trick with relievers is, uh, you know, over 60 innings, it doesn't take a whole lot for your season to kind of go in the toilet. You have a couple of bad outings, and all of a sudden your season ERA is over four. Right. So what do we know about the Craig Kimbrell, like, you know, over the last month or two of the season compared to – the Craig, the ver- version of Craig Kimbrell we've seen for the last, you know, four years before that. Well, I think down the stretch he was crazy good. Like he oh, had a bit good. of a rough start in San Diego. I think he had gave up some home runs early in the season. Um, and so his first half-ish was not Pete Kimbrell, but down the like the second half, Craig Kimbrell was insane. Mm-hmm. Now <clears throat> we know that the Royal. Uh, so what this does to the Red Sox, we know, is that it pushes Koji U- Uohara, um sort of back down into the bullpen a little bit. With Kimball yeah, taking over, eighth, yeah. he'll pitch the eighth, right? Um, and uh, will they still uh, have uh, Jinichi Tozawa as well? Uh, yeah, I believe they still have Tozawa in right. the contract. I think that's true. Okay, well, I think it's true too. Even if it's not, the point is they'll probably find they have other relievers as well, right? Uh, that will allow them to, uh, as people say, shorten games. Yeah, I think Dombrowski's uh, goal is to have a deeper bullpen than he had in Detroit. Right. The now. The, we, we just saw the Royals win the World Series, of course, and I believe, um, if not the most, uh, they were, the uh, Royals bullpen pitched almost the most innings of, uh, of any bullpen in the majors. I think that's true, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, – now, there's, of course, there, there tends to be um, some copycatting going on. Uh, do you anticipate in this next year uh, that we will see teams purposely moving towards uh, maybe um, – Maybe going towards their bullpens faster than they have in the past. I mean, I think we've already kind of seen that. Like the average number of innings pitched by starting pitchers has been in decline for a while. Uh, and I think uh, as teams kind of see that the the third time through the order penalty is really a significant factor, and that you know starting pitchers 
uh, are not that effective when you let hitters get a few good looks at them. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if kind of the more uh, aggressive teams and looking for edges started kind of copying what Tampa Bay did this year, where very, you know, very regularly they would take their starting pitchers out after 18 batters faced uh, or close to it, even if they were pitching well, um, rather than just kind of leaving them in until they got in trouble. I think that kind of model of like, we're just going to ride our starter until the other team starts to rally, and then we're going to get the bullpen up to try and get them out of it, that's going to probably go away. And you'll see teams like schedule their uh, relief outings a little bit more in advance. I can see, you know, maybe the league as a whole moving towards having, you know, five, six innings is the norm for a starting pitcher, and then, you know, relievers almost always starting the seventh or regularly starting the seventh, uh, even if the starting pitcher wasn't getting in trouble. So um, I do think we're probably going to trend more towards bullpen usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trick is going to be how you do that over a six-month span, because in the postseason it's a lot easier when there's frequent off days, and especially if you win your series and there's like a good break between you know the division series and the LCS, you can really rest your guys again, and you'll have an extra starter available because you only need four starters in the postseason. Uh, so I think it's it's tougher when you're playing 162 games in six months and you'll you know get two or three off days a month. You can't ride your, your your bullpen that hard without kind of running them into the ground. So the tricky thing is teams are either going to uh, kind of do what the Dodgers did this year and have like 15 relievers that they just shuffle between AAA and the majors, uh, or they're going to have to figure out some way of like maybe just having like a first half bullpen and the second half bullpen, and you keep some guys in the minors and you don't work them so hard, and then you call them up in July and and let them loose for the second half of the year. But I do think we'll probably head that direction. Yeah, well, th- it seems as though another thing the Royals did quite a bit of was to I mean, you know, there are a lot of relievers who have been starters in the past, but I feel like uh, at points they've had a number of starters or a number of relievers who had definite starting roles uh, in yeah. a not very distant past. Like Luke Koshaver, Wade Davis, yeah. Right. And so... Uh, Danny Duffy. I suppose, I don't know, it like... You know, now, the, the reason some... There are certain guys who stay starters in the minors just because they have a wide, a wide variety of pitches, but they wouldn't necessarily... Uh, they wouldn't necessarily play up. Like I think of a guy like Scott Copeland. Do yeah. I even know who that is? Todd yeah. Redmond. Yeah. Like is Todd Redmond an elite ace? Is he a, is he an elite reliever if you put him in the bullpen, or is he just kind of Todd Redmond in the bullpen? Well, I don't think Todd Todd Redmond's an elite reliever anywhere, unless we're talking like in the minors. Maybe. <laughs> no, but he's just. I think he frequently has he's done a lot of starting, I believe, in his minor league career. But not every starter is necessarily an elite reliever. Right. You yeah. can't just take a guy who's 86, put him in the bullpen, and uh, say, okay, throw 97 now. Like, occasionally Liam Hendricks will, you know, pop up and go from a 90-mile-an-hour starter to a 96-mile-an-hour reliever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think Joe Nathan was one of those guys uh, when he got converted early in his career. Mm-hmm. So it does happen, but uh, not every uh, starting pitcher is going to become a, you know, monstrous strikeout reliever. Uh, but, you know, I think, like, uh, there's enough enough Wade Davises out there that if you've got a failed starting pitcher, uh, seeing if they can turn into a, you know, a remarkable Hall of Fame level closer for a couple of years isn't a bad idea. Yeah, it seems like a decent strategy. Um, all right, so, so now, we know that um, uh, when Dave Dombrowski was the GM for the, for the Detroit Tigers, that... Uh, basically, no prospect made it all the way through the Tiger system without ending up on a different team. Yeah, he's a he's a guy who uses his farm system as currency. Right, and part of that was while he was with the Tigers, he had a mandate from ownership, Mike Illich, uh, owing largely to Mike Illich's age, I assume, right, to win to win yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and so that was part of it. And I think other teams have exhibited philosophies where they 
um, it's not as though they don't believe in developing players. Uh, it's just that they b- believe in those players maybe are, are typically more valuable as assets to be traded as opposed to uh, to used at the major league level. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with treating your prospects as currency if you correctly value them and th- and actually have a real advantage over the market and how the market values them. So, like, you know, if Dave Dombrowski knew that Andrew Miller and Cameron Maven were overrated prospects who, you know, Maven was going to turn into an okay but not special player and Andrew Miller was going to end up as a reliever, trading those guys for Miguel Cabrera, fantastic idea, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, it's not entirely clear that we that Dombrowski did know that in advance, but, you know, at least in retrospect, that trade worked out fantastically well and a lot of Dombrowski these prospects for veterans trades have worked out well, and a lot of people just give him the benefit of the doubt at this point and say, if Dombrowski trades some prospects away, they're probably not any good anyway. Uh, I think that's a little bit of an appeal to authority and, and not necessarily the best kind of analysis, but there is something to be said for identifying overvalued prospects and turning them into win-now major league talent, especially good major league talent uh, that you can control for a while. If you can make those kinds of trades regularly, that's a perfectly valid use of your farm system just as much as developing players internally. Well, here, here's a question. What is the, what's the right number of prospects to have? Huh. Or what is like, how deep should your, it seems like there's a certain depth to your farm where eventually you should be like, we need to turn some of this into, into present day talent. So you're basically uh, stealing my idea on uh, my just a bit outside post for tomorrow. Uh, so basically my column that will go up probably around the same time as this podcast uh, <laughs> over at Fox tomorrow is basically I'm addressing that point, which I think is actually a myth. So I don't think that your prospect al- uh, asset allocation, like how many prospects you have, really should have much to do or anything to do with how willing you are to trade prospects at a discount. So, like, you know, uh, in this deal, uh, the main rationale, I would say, from the Red Sox perspective for giving up a lot of value for Craig Kimbrell is that, whatever, we have a lot of prospects. We didn't need them all. We had good major league players, good young major league players at the positions these guys play so that we're going to have to train them eventually anyway. Um, so essentially this is an argument for diminishing returns, right? Like in a vacuum, this guy is worth this, but he's worth less to us because we have all these other things. So his value to us is diminished. Uh, diminishing returns are a real thing, especially at the major league level where there's only so many positions and so much playing time. And you could even make an argument that maybe in Boston right now we see diminishing returns with the fact that like Jackie Bradley and Mookie Betts can't both play center field. Like, so one of those two is going to have to go to a corner if they keep them and maybe Jackie Bradley is more valuable to another team that can deploy him in center field. So there's like a real argument for diminishing returns, uh, you know, when there's kind of a crowded field at the major league level. At the minor league level, I think it's hogwash. Like the failure rate of even really good prospects is 60 or 70 percent, uh, with pitching prospects it's closer to 80 percent. So in almost every case where you're like, man, we have all these shortstop prospects, what are we going to do? They fail and they figure it out for you. And a lot of times they move off the positions like Javier Guerra. Oh, you can say, oh, he's blocked by Xander Bogarts. Well, he won't be blocked by Xander Bogarts if he has to move to to third base or second base. Uh, you know, and you can say, okay, well, we've got Dustin Pedroia, but Pedroia is like 33 and he can easily blow out his knee. And like, there's so many things that could happen, uh, in the couple of years that these guys could develop that I think the idea that like there's an optimal number of prospects to have and once you get over that number, you should make a trade or if you're under that number, you, you have to hoard your prospects. I think that's just incorrect. So you think, well, because you're right. I mean, to some degree, uh, the reason you have a farm and the reason you have a, a minor league system is to have numbers because 
you know, usually the guys who you who you uh, what who scout or you regard as having more talent will be the ones who graduate, but uh, not a hundred percent of them will develop, and not zero percent of the you know uh, theoretically lower valued prospects won't. I mean, won't materialize. Some of them will. So you have you want to have numbers, and you yeah, want to have the most talented numbers you can. I think if you look at the Red Sox system, which is generally was generally considered probably the best one in baseball, uh, you know, you could say like based on their top 40 prospects, you maybe expect like five good major league players out of that entire group, and not all not all of them will be five good players in the short term, but you know, over the next 10 years, maybe five of them will turn into good big leaguers, and like maybe three of them will turn into stars, something like that, uh, and that's kind of probably the the best or a fair expectation from a farm system with loaded prospects is that you're going to get, you know, uh, an 80% failure rate or something in that range, 70%, something like that. Uh, so when you look at it and say, like, oh, man, uh, we have way too many prospects because we expect to get five good major league players out of the next decade out of this, like, who can't afford, who can't figure out how to fit five players in a six-year span onto your roster? Like, even if they play the same position now, okay, Mookie Betts was blocked by... Dustin Pedroia, except for now he's one of the best center fielders in baseball, and he doesn't appear blocked anymore, and you're really glad you kept him. And so I think uh, diminishing returns is a real problem when you don't have the playing time for the guy at the major league level, uh, or if you have to move him to a less valuable position. Like if you had to move a shortstop to first base or something like that, that's a real harm to his value. In the minor leagues, it doesn't matter. You have six minor league teams uh, it, it, just in America there's so many at-bats to go around. These guys don't necessarily need to play every day anyway because they're still developing and they can work on stuff in practice. Like, there's so much time for you to uh, figure out where these guys are going to fit that you just – having a loaded farm system should not be an incentive to just trade guys at a discount because you have other good prospects. And I think, you know, talking about the other trade that we haven't talked about yet, you know, where the Angels traded Sean Newcomb, who was basically their only prospect. I've seen Angels fans say, oh, we couldn't, shouldn't have given this guy up because now our farm system is terrible – it doesn't matter. Like all that matters is getting value out of the guy you had, and the fact that you don't have any other prospects left uh, is basically irrelevant if you got a good deal for Sean Newcomb, which I think the Angels did. So, so you think that until a guy is really pushing for major league playing time, really, really clearly requires. I think so like from some years ago, at one point in Philadelphia, Jim Tomey was the first baseman, and then Ryan Howard was uh, having very – he was having a ton of success like at AAA or something right. like that. And I think it became pretty clear that he had the ability to hit major league pitching. Yeah. And he, he was quite good, obviously, for, for a few years. Right. Uh, and so you're saying like – now in a situation like that, would you say, well, we got to figure out what to do with one of these guys? Yeah, I mean, I think like maybe the best current example would be something like Kyle Schwarber, right? Like he's blocked in Chicago and that he should probably be a first baseman, but they have Anthony Rizzo. And so here's a case where they're like, Kyle Schwarber is less valuable to the Cubs than he probably is to other organizations who don't have a good young first baseman locked up for the next decade. Right. Uh, but Kyle Schwarber does not, clearly does not have zero value to the Cubs. Like they said, okay, it's inefficient relative to Schwarber playing first base for him to play left field. But it doesn't mean that we're just going to give him away or, you know, treat him as a, something that's not all that valuable to us because we have to have an inefficient positioning of him uh, by sticking him in the outfield. We're just going to let him go out there and mash and deal with the defensive issues. And I think the Cubs are pretty happy they did that down the stretch, even if it didn't work out so great in the playoffs. Uh, 
uh, at least, you know, in the, against the Mets anyway. Um, and I think, like, you know, that's the kind of situation where you say, like, it might make sense to make a trade if someone's willing to give you 100%, you know, uh, 100 cents on the dollar for his value, but there's no reason to trade him for 80 cents on the dollar just because he's, you know, 10% less good in the outfield than he would be at first base. Like, you still have a valuable asset, and I think in Margo and Guerra and Allen, these guys are still valuable assets to the Red Sox, and, you know, I think... uh for me, in looking at this trade, I think the Red Sox could have gotten uh, a better, more valuable return than a relief pitcher on a you know somewhat expensive contract for a relief pitcher anyway. Uh, that by giving this package for you know I think like if you had called uh, you know maybe the Marlins and said hey look I know you don't want to trade Jose Fernandez but we'll give you these four players and then like one other guy off your system, uh, you probably could have gotten at least the conversation started, right? And three years of Jose Fernandez is definitely worth more than three years of Craig Kimbrell. Okay. Let's move to the other uh, trade. We don't have to dwell on it forever because you've already uh, almost um, uh, filled You're saying I, d- I dwelled on that one forever? No, no, it was my fault. It was, it was my fault. <laughs> the the Angels acquired from uh, the, uh, the Atlanta Ball Club, Andrelton Simmons, um, along with a catcher, Jose Briseno, does that sound right? Yeah, who you'll never mention on the podcast ever again. Probably. Okay, probably not. Uh, in exchange for uh, pitcher Sean Newcomb, Chris Ellis, and then uh, shortstop Eric Ibar. Yeah. Okay. And then there was what? Some money changing hands, but not a ton. Two million dollars, basically just evening out the salary. Okay. All right. Andrew <clears throat> uh, uh, and Simmons. This obviously makes it easy, right? Be, or, or interesting uh, to to look at because. Andrelton Simmons, while he has not, I mean, he's, he's exhibited some offensive skills. Uh, he's made a bunch of contact at points. He had, what, like 15 home runs one year? Yeah, he used to hit for power. Yeah. Um, most of his value is tied to his defensive skill. Yeah, almost and, all. And yeah. so it becomes, uh, what well, doesn't need to become, but it, it can certainly become a question about, uh, the value, the value of defense and how defense ages. Yeah. Uh, what you did, yeah, you looked at uh, players, you looked at the Andrelton Simmonses of the past, and you actually found that while their defense declined a little bit, they actually became better uh, offensive players as they aged, typically. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is something to the idea of, like, defense peaks early. Uh, there's no question that uh, this kind of skill set isn't something that, you know, if you had a 31-year-old, you'd want to bet on for the next five years or something. But when you have a 25-year-old who's, uh, you know, one of the best defensive players we've seen in, in 50 years... The idea that he's going to stop being a defensive asset in the short term is, uh, I would say, unsubstantiated by the by the evidence. If you actually look at the facts and look at other guys who have been this good, uh, they've generally remained elite defenders, even if they aren't quite as elite as they were earlier. And you know, while they're they lost like 10 or 11 runs of defensive value uh, per season on average uh, from 26 to 30 is what they had up through 25. They got like four or five runs of offensive value back, so the net loss was like half a win. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're going to take Anderson Simmons as like a three or three and a half win player, and you're like, oh, we're going to take a half a win off his value over the next five years. Okay, that's fine. You still have a two and a half to three win player. This is still a really nice, uh, above average major league shortstop signed for 50 million bucks over the next five years. Uh, I think, uh, with all due respect to, uh, the, the Braves new kind of, uh, direction and, and general manager John Copalello, I think they, they screwed up here. I think that the bet on Sean Newcomb, is basically a bet on him turning into an ace, and anything short of him becoming a frontline starting pitcher, this trade's a big mistake. Right, and how many more years of Ibar does that include? One. He's a free agent at the end of the year. Right, and then 
uh, in theory, the idea, uh, I mean, it's obviously not a guarantee, uh, but they do have, what, Ozzy Albius? Yeah, but this is, this kind of goes back to the same conversation we just had. Like, right, no, no, yeah, right, the, yeah. The fact that you have pro- shortstop prospects doesn't mean you couldn't just wait until those guys developed, see what you had, and then in a year or two, if, uh, you know, you want to replace Anderson Simmons with Ozzy Albies in 2018, that's fine, you can do that then. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, if you were, if you were tasked with, uh, like, if you were at, like, a high school debate contest or tournament, what did they have? Tournaments? And you were given the position of defending the trade on behalf of the Atlanta. How would you do so? So I think the argument for this trade essentially stems from the idea that defense is undervalued in the marketplace and you can buy it fairly cheaply. So I think like we can, you know, there was a very minor transaction yesterday and the, the, the Mariners acquired Leonis Martin uh, from the Rangers for Tom Wilhelmson, who's a, you know, a good, interesting reliever, but nothing special. Uh, and, you know, so Leonis Martin is a, you know, a plus defensive center fielder uh, with three years of arbitration left. He's going to make, you know, probably 15, 20 million dollars if he plays well over his RB years. Uh, that's total, not per year. So, you know, Leonis Martin is cheap and an elite defender and he got traded for a relief pitcher. So, from the Braves perspective, they can say, you know what, we think that we can buy defense for not that much money. Uh, and if we really want a premium defensive player, we can go pay for it in some other way. But really, premium pitching is very expensive. David Price is going to get $200 million this winter. Zach Greinke is going to get, you know, 175 something like that. Like, top-end pitching is way more expensive than top-end defense. If Sean Newcomb can turn into a top-end pitcher, which there's some chance he could. I mean, he's got really good stuff and could be a late-developing guy if his command improves. Uh, you know, if he turns into that kind of front-line starter, they can buy a, you know, really good defender uh, cheaper than they could buy a really good starter. Uh, I think that the idea that Andrews and Simmons type defenders are freely available on the market is uh, at low cost is is not true. I mean, Jason Hayward is kind of in that class of free agent. He's going to get two hundred million dollars this winter. Uh, I think you know the really elite three to four win twenty six to thirty year olds. Even the defense first ones are still getting valued at a at a high price. Not necessarily what the, their offensive equivalents are, but not at not at bargain rates. And I think like the failure rate of Sean Ducom type prospects is insanely high. Like this is essentially a bet on a pitching prospect who walked whatever twelve or thirteen percent of the guys he faced through throughout the minor leagues. You are betting on a, a, a stuff guy figuring out how to throw strikes and I think that's probably the highest risk pitching prospect you could possibly find. Uh, there's some chance it'll work out. Maybe there's like, I don't know, a 10 or 15% chance that Newcomb turns into a really high quality starter. And there's like a 70% chance that he's like nothing ever at the big leagues. And I think if you have a five year controllable three, four win shortstop, uh, you know, at bargain prices, turning that into a lottery ticket pitching prospect is not a good idea. So I guess, well, the idea about defense being available cheaply, there's, there seems to be still like a little bit of a gap if, if you believe that. I guess I'm curious, why is Andrelton Simmons so well regarded beyond that? Right? He, he, cause he's sort of, he's famous for this excellent defense. Yeah, cause I think he's at another level, right? Like, okay, right. if you look at like that post I did on the previous Simmons is, he was the third best defender based on that D600 metric I came up with, which is, you know, basically like defensive value, which is UZR plus the position adjustment, uh, or total zone for the older guys. Uh, 
Uh, every 600 so, plate appearances. Yeah, every, per 600 plate appearances. Simmons was like in the, near the very top of the list of guys dating back 50 years. Like even Ozzie Smith was like plus 19, uh, through age 25 and then he got up to plus 23 in his 26 to 30 years. Simmons is a plus 27. So like Simmons is, you know, performing at, a level that would make him the best defensive player of all time if he could sustain it. He probably can't, but if he does, if he continues to play defense at this level, he'll go down as the best defender we've ever seen in the history of the game. Uh, I think there's a difference between that and, you know, just a run-of-the-mill good defender. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, oh, yeah, uh, Tom Willinson, you mentioned he was traded. He's a strange pitcher. He still throws at like 95, 96. He is a strange. He has, his whole career is bizarre. Like, you know, he uh, quit baseball for a while and tended bar and just was like out of baseball for a while. And then he decided to come back and like, oh look, I throw ninety nine. Uh, and he came back to the you know he couldn't throw strikes and he didn't strike anybody out and he was basically just a stuffed guy in the minor leagues. And then he came to the major leagues and he figured out how to throw strikes and had a dominating curveball and was a really great reliever for a little while. And then he forgot how to throw strikes and his stuff diminished and he wasn't very good. And then he kind of bounced back. So. Uh, it's a bet on stuff for sure with Wilhelmson. The stuff is there. There's even, you know, probably enough there that you could dream on him becoming a starting pitcher at some point. His changeup's actually okay and, uh, you know, as a three pitch guy. And, you know, I think like, uh, I've heard some comparisons made to like Jeff Samarja who, uh, you know, spent a lot of time developing as a football player and, and didn't, wasn't very good in the minors and then got to the major leagues and actually turned into a good pitcher. Uh, you're not looking at Wilhelmson necessarily as going to have Jeff Samarja's career, but there's even some thought that like Wilhelmson could eventually be a starting pitcher, uh, if he was developed that way and, um, you know, so he's, a, he's certainly an interesting guy as a guy with upside. He could be a very good reliever. He could be an okay starting pitcher or he could just be a middle reliever with command problems. There's a wide range of possible outcomes with him. Given the fact that he, he does have the, the good raw stuff and certainly yeah. can throw hard, uh, but has not had the success. Well, he's had the success and then he lost the success. He, right, right. He hasn't had it in a couple of years, right? I think 2012 was a really good year for him. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I start, I begin to think, well, perhaps it's just, a, it's a mechanical issue, right? Perhaps it's a sequencing issue, which are things that are easier to address than, uh, you know, uh, pitcher's raw, raw tools. And then I think, well, is it possible that the Rangers see something that would constitute an easy fix, or at least a doable fix that the Mariners, uh, until that point had not seen? So here's, that leads to my question. What do we know about how often a team identifies a pitcher on another, on another club, and then acquires him cheaply with a viewpoint towards changing one thing or you know something relatively easy, and then he becomes very good. I think you just described the pirates. Okay, all right. <laughs> so that's so that's something that so that's racy origin, the pirates, etc. Yeah. Uh, Dave Duncan of the Cardinals, like every pitcher he got, he just taught him a two seamer, and they turned into a good pitcher. <laughs> like, right. And Colin, uh, uh, Colin, Colin McHugh uh, with Houston. Yeah. I mean, he had some some sort of raw raw. They like they liked the spin rate on his curveball, and so right. they acquired him basically just for that, and told him to like use your curveball more, and he got good. Um, so there is some of that, and I think like uh, if you were targeting major league players right now, that you said, I think this guy has the chance to be, you know, better than his performance based on his raw stuff. Uh, I think that acquiring players from the Mariners who tried to develop into the Jack Sorensic era is probably the best idea you can possibly have. <laughs> like, if you think that there's one organization who was really bad at developing talent and not getting the most out of it, it was Seattle over the last five years. And I think uh, not a bad idea to target guys on the Mariners roster to be like, hey, look, this guy's been an underperformer, but we think that was maybe like really terrible coaching and development. Right. So, well, could you... 
so wait, who else have we had uh, traded away from those Mariners? We saw what Dustin Ackley at the end yeah. of last year, right? Right. The Rays just picked up Brad Miller. Uh, the Blue Jays tried this with Justin Smoke last year, and I think they even like publicly said this, like after they made the waiver claim uh, to acquire him, they're like, well, you know. Seattle hasn't been so good at developing hitters lately, so we think maybe he'll be better in Toronto. And it's like, well, that's probably true. He wasn't great, though. I would say, like, Justin Smoke is, like, a good example of the fact that, like, not every player leaves Seattle is going to be amazing. And they didn't, uh, didn't they also, although he had, he had for decent power, I guess, with, uh, with Toronto, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, not great for a first baseman. Right. He was basically a replacement level player still, which right. is what he is, yeah. And then, and then, wait, whatever, what happened to Michael Saunders? Cause he got traded he to He got the, hurt again, which is uh, what he does. Oh, okay, that's a problem. Yes, he, yeah. but it, well, another thing he does is have disagreements with the Mariners, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, they weren't getting along so well at right. the end of his tenure. Right. Uh, partly because he was hurt, and they were they thought he was faking it. Right, and then wait a second. Uh, well, uh, the Padres just conducted a trade with the Mariners too. Who did they get in re- in return for Joaquin Benoit? Uh, two low-level prospects okay. uh, right. who are you know mostly notable for the fact that. Uh, the Mariner system is terrible, and so they're only really considered prospects uh, in the Mariner system because the Mariners don't have prospects. Okay. All right. Uh, Kim, I think you've done it. Is there anything I've uh, overlooked uh, egregiously? Well, we didn't talk about like any of the awards which are going to come out the week of the podcast, but I guess we can talk about those next week. We could also. I don't know. You just don't care. Yeah, I don't know. This group of people thought this one player was good. Maybe individually you think this one other guy was better. I don't know. We can I talk mean, about your just, votes. I think you just summed up every Fangraphs article ever. Well, yeah, but we can talk about your votes, maybe when they your votes when they come out. Yeah, I only had one this year. What was it NL? NL Cy Young, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, so that that could be a good discussion next week. Okay, we'll or do maybe that. We, maybe we could do a podcast at the end of the week. Who knows? That's crazy. Uh, well, no, that would be that would be Thanksgiving. Uh, this the end of this week now. That is no. Oh, the end of this week. I see what yeah. you're saying. Like, yeah, may, uh, yeah, potentially. Well, let's not do that though. The, uh, <laughs> and the other thing I want to ask you about is Nathaniel Grow. You know, uh, wrote a really great two-part post recently on the uh, some issues entering the new uh, collective bargaining agreement. Yeah. Um, and it, I think he laid out very nicely what the what the issues are and um, what's likely to take place. And I, I did have some questions about that. We can get to those next week because because owners have a, owners have quite a percentage of the revenue at this point. Yeah, maybe we should wait for the Hardball Times annual to come out because I have an article in that book about this topic as well. And then you could talk, ask me about my article and his article, and I wouldn't have to like just do a tease. Oh, yeah. Yeah, All but right. we'll call this a tease. Coming cool. soon, the 2016 Hardball Times annual featuring a lot of good stuff and an article. From when, me. Does that, uh, when does that come out? Uh, soon. I think Swyden said before Thanksgiving, so whatever, next uh, nine days? Yeah, you sure you met American Thanksgiving? Well, Canadian Thanksgiving already happened. So before next year's Canadian Thanksgiving? Yeah, well, I guess, like, something would always be before something <laughs> if you were just going to be next year. It's like, coming before Christmas of 2030. Yeah, all right. Okay, all right. Well, thank you so much, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. All right, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. Carson Stooley has been Fangraphs Audio. 